0: provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. As around here, where we lived in Mexico, it was a good climate for citrus trees. And so, after some time in our home, after I'd gotten my palm trees going. I had to have palm trees, being from Florida, I wanted palm trees even though they're not native to the area, they do grow there, so my palm trees were underway. And I planted some citrus trees. I went out and got a couple of identical lemon saplings. And I planted them in different parts of the yard, not a very big yard, and so the sun didn't always hit. And so I was looking for the right place, and I ended up moving these couple saplings around a couple times to find the right place for them to grow. And finally I did. And they began to grow. And let me tell you about these two saplings as they grew. One of them grew, but the uh, leaf cutter ants really liked it. And they would come overnight, and they would strip it bare. And then we'd have to try to resuscitate it again. But eventually, it got going. It never was a pretty tree. It was always kind of scraggly. But it began to produce lemons. And it didn't just have one Harvest of lemons, it had two long harvests of lemons each year. And so we had this abundant harvest of lemons, and it was wonderful. Now, the other began to take off, and its leaves were huge, its branches were shooting out. I was always having to trim it because it grew so fast. And it, it was, it was a, a, a bush, it was so thick. And it grew up and it grew out, but it never produced a single flower. And it never, therefore, produced a single lemon. And I kept watering it, and I kept trimming it, and I kept watching it grow. It was a beautiful plant to look at. The only thing that it produced were these deadly thorns. And so one had to be very careful when trimming this this tree. Really, the only thing I ever harvested off this tree were thorns. And i keep cutting the thorns so that they wouldn't keep poking me. Now, um, the, I don't know enough about trees to know the difference here, why one produced and the other never, ever produced. But I do know this. I do know that fruit has to come from the inside. There was something different about the inside of these trees that caused one to produce fruit and the other to produce thorns. And that's the same thing with people as well. And that's the whole image that Paul is using here, using an image that Jesus himself used. The world tends to look on that which is outwardly beautiful. And so if you would look at these two trees from a distance, you would probably say, I'll take that one. It's beautiful. It is lush. It is full. But it was thorny after all. But what God values is what he himself produces in his people. And it has to come from the inside, this fruit. It can't be stuck on artificially from the outside. If I had gone to that that beautiful bush and simply hung lemons on it with strings, that would not have done the trick, would it? The fruit has to come from the outside and likewise with us. Well, who has access to the inside of believers? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit does. This is what the Scripture teaches. That Jesus is God with us. And Jesus said, I'm going away, but I am going to give you one in my place who will be with you forever, who will dwell in you. And so how do we know that the Holy Spirit dwells in believers? How can we tell? And the answer is, by the fruit that He produces in our lives. And that's what we're talking about today, as I said. All about the Holy Spirit, all about the fruit of the Spirit. But let's back up and see how we got to this point. Galatians. What's it all about? It's all about the gospel, which is the good news. And we saw from the very first verses that this this is the gospel. God became a man. He obeyed the law, gave his life to rescue his people, and then God raised him from the dead. So, Jesus is the Son of God, died for us, and was risen from the dead. And then the argument in Galatians is... Therefore, He is the only way to be right before God, by having faith in Him, not by depending on the works of the law. That's the constant argument throughout this letter of Galatians, because He came, gave His life for us, was risen from the dead. The only way we can be rightified, justified, put in the right before God, is through faith in Him, dependence on what He has done, not dependence on what we have done in obedience to the law of God." Now, we saw last week that Paul turned a corner. He said, so far so good. We, we have established through many arguments that we can be right before God through faith in Jesus Christ, and then he raised the question, what does faith look like? And he said, really, it's not a question of circumcision, it's not a question of uncircumcision, it's not a question of following ceremonies, it's a question of faith that works through love. And then he clarified that those who have faith, who have been justified, have not been justified in order to indulge our passions, but rather so that we might serve one another in love. And now he's building on this idea. What does faith look like? What does faith do? If we have faith in Christ, in order to be right before God, what's it look like in our lives? How can we tell? How can others tell that we have this faith? And the answer is by the fruit of of the Spirit. Now there are several expressions here that we will see. We will see walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, Uh, we will see live by the Spirit, and keep in line or keep in step with the Spirit. And this whole section, verses 16 to 26, have a constant tension, a, a contrast, even a battle, if you will, between Spirit, with a capital S, and flesh. And so we need to define terms here. Whenever you see spirit here, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. In other contexts, it may be talking about the human spirit, but spirit here is the Holy Spirit. Now what about flesh? Flesh in the New Testament, and flesh even in Galatians, is used in a few different ways. Sometimes it simply means the human body, that Jesus was born in the flesh. He was born as a human, that's all it means. But, here, it has a more technical meaning. It means sinful humanity. It means sinful human nature. And this is the conflict that is set up from the beginning here. Look at verse 16. He says, "...walk by the Spirit." And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, from the beginning, flesh, spirit. And then he sets up the battle. Verse 17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. And then there's this difficult line at the end of verse 17. It says, uh, they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And the, the commentators, the erudite commentators, the learned men and women are divided on what this means. And I'm frankly not sure. There are some options, and I'll give you the options. The last line uh, could mean that the Spirit keeps us from doing the sinful things that we want to do in the flesh. So we want to do these sinful things, but the Spirit holds us back. Or it could mean the opposite. It could mean that we, as people with the Spirit, want to do good things, but the, but the flesh gets in our way and keeps us from doing the things we really want to do. Or it could mean both of those, that we're stymied wherever we turn. That, that when the sinful flesh wants to do what it wants to do, the, the Spirit intervenes and, and, and puts a stop. Or when, when we want to do the things that the Spirit inspires in us, that, that the flesh just gets in our way. Now, as I said, I don't know exactly which of those is the best interpretation. But what we can see here clearly is this. There is a complication in the life of Christians. And there's a complication in the life of Christians that non-Christians do not have. If we are living, and if you can go back, if you did not grow up as a Christian, if you became a Christian later, and you remember what it's like to live according to the flesh, you can recall that that is a simple sort of existence. You simply give in to your passions. And there is not this battle that, that exists within you. But then the Holy Spirit comes in, and there is this tension that is introduced in the life of the believer. And there is a a sense of frustration because there are these new desires that we have, but we keep getting tripped up by what we could call the old man or the old woman, the flesh. And so there is this tension. And by the way, if you experience that tension in your life, that's a good thing. Even though it's difficult at times, it is a good thing because it shows that you are not simply given over to the passions of the flesh. Now, the good thing about this tension is that uh, even though it can be frustrating, it keeps us wanting more, doesn't it? as we taste what it's like to live by the Spirit, as we taste what it's like to exhibit His fruit, as we taste what it's like to walk with God according to the power of the Spirit, we want more and more. And so the fact that we don't have the entire experience in this life keeps us longing for, keeps us striving for more. And that's the whole point of this text. This text is pushing us on to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit more and more in our lives. And the first expression that's used is walk by the Spirit. Verse 16. I say, if walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. This is one of Paul's favorite metaphors. Walking. You find this all through Paul's writings. And it's a metaphor for living. It's, it's a constant direction. It's the, the constant uh, uh, pattern of one's life. And, and, and we, we use that expression as well. Uh, we talk about the Christian walk, uh, the daily walk. Uh, and that's what he's saying here. The, the, the overall direction of your life should be a direction that is guided by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. Now, um, when he says that, if we do, if we do walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he used an expression here that is the strongest way to negate something in in this language that he was writing. Uh, He he, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not gratify the desires of the flesh. So here is the antidote. If If we don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh, the antidote is to walk by the Spirit. Now notice here, Notice here that this is telling us to do something, isn't it? It's telling us, walk. So this is not a a sort of quietism. This is not simply a, a let go and let God. This is rather, put one foot in front of the other and make sure the direction of your life is in accordance with the dictates of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. That's the first image. And the second image we find in verse 18. And here, he talks about being led by the Spirit. So, the first one is, walk by the Spirit. And the second one, in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. So, walk by the Spirit, and you will in no way gratify the the desires of the flesh. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, as we've already seen, This does not mean that we pay no attention to the law. It does not mean that we reject the law. It means something even better. It means that we have an inner power now, if we are led by the Spirit, to walk in the ways of the law and to fulfill the law. Look back uh, to last week. Paul said in verse 14, "...for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." So, it's fulfilled. If we're walking by the Spirit, and what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Love. And if we're walking by the Spirit, walking in love, we are fulfilling the law. So, it's not that we're rejecting the law, we're actually fulfilling the law by walking according to the Spirit. Now, look at these two, let's put these two expressions together. He says, walk by the Spirit, which is something that we need to do, right? That's a command to us. And the second expression is, if you are... Led by the Spirit. Who's doing the action there? The Holy Spirit is. So that's how this works. We're told, walk by the Spirit, and we're told that the Spirit leads us. So this is a a work of the Spirit in us that enables us to walk according to the Spirit. Now what follows, in order to make this very, very practical, what follows are two contrasting lists. And we have, on the one hand, the works... Of the flesh, and on the other hand, we have the fruit of the spirit, so we 're in verse nineteen all the way up to verse twenty three verse nineteen works of the flesh, and then verse twenty two fruit of the spirit. Now, before we look at these lists, think about those two words. We have the works of the flesh what 's a work something we do it 's action it 's something we do, it's it's something we do. Uh, and then the fruit of the Spirit, what's fruit? We already saw that fruit has to come from inside. It has to blossom and bloom and, and develop inside out. So, works, we should take responsibility for, because they're ours. Fruit, if we have fruit in our lives, who gets the credit? Well, the one who produced it in us. So, there's this contrast here. Works are what we do. Fruit is what God produces. And so, we have this, these works of the flesh. And he says, these are evident. And I think they're still evident 2,000 years later, aren't they? Is there anything in this list that we haven't heard of? Anything in this list where we say, what is that? Never heard of that before, never seen that manifested before. No, these are still evident. And he says that sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then things like these. So I think there are 14 there, and then he just adds on to the end, and anything that's like these things. Now, now uh, one commentator, Bishop Lightfoot, helpfully categorized these into four, uh, four categories. And I think this is a helpful way to look at these. And this helps, gives, us, gives us sort of a, a summary categories to think about the works of the flesh and how they might manifest themselves. The first group are the sensual sins, the sins of the, of the body, um, mostly having to do with sexuality. The first three, sensual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And there are all sorts of things that could fit under those categories, perhaps made more, more common even by, by the proliferation of internet pornography. And then we have the second category, unlawful dealings in spiritual things, idolatry, sorcery, occult type things, things that are spiritual in nature that are unlawful. And then we have the largest list. The largest list would come under the category of what Lightfoot calls violations of brotherly love. Violations of brotherly love. Enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of these things are violations of love. All of these things are are interpersonal. All of these things are against other humans. And then the, the last one he calls excesses. Excesses. And these are things like drunkenness and orgies. Dissipation, giving ourselves over. And then he adds, like these things. After this this list, he gives a solemn warning. And apparently he had already warned them when he was with them. And he warns them again. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, we, could pr- we could translate this, not to change the meaning, but to bring out the meaning, those who practice these things. Because here it's a, a present tense and it looks like it's emphasizing the walk. It's emphasizing the way of life. Not so much if... If on an occasion you, you stumble into one of these things, that's not the idea here. The idea here is if you, if you practice these things in your life, if this is the, how you live your life, he says you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now why does he say that? He does not say that because if you practice these things, you have somehow lost your salvation. Rather, he's saying something more radical here. He's saying if you practice these things you don't have salvation in the first place and it's obvious that you don't because you practice these things it's obvious that you don't have faith because you don't have the fruit of faith in your life uh, he, if you look at verse 24 that that uh, that seals it he says and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires what's he saying He's invoking that same image that he used back in in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And he'll use that once again in chapter 6 about being crucified to the world and the world to Him. So he uses this three times here. And he says, "...those who are Christians have made a definitive break, a definitive break caused by death with those passions of the flesh, not so that they never rear their ugly heads again. He's not saying that." but so that they no longer dominate our lives, so that they no longer characterize the way we live our lives. They're no longer part of who we are, even though they may still continue to battle with us in this, this contest of flesh and spirit. Now, in stark contrast to the works of the flesh is the fruit of the Spirit. And, and I had a, a Bible, I don't remember where along the way it wore out, or I changed versions, or what it was, but I, I recall that when I was a Christian, a young, a young Christian, I had a Bible that had a very happy page break. It, it broke between verse 21 and 22. And, and on the bottom right hand of, of one page... It finished with this, this, this warning about if you, if you live according to, if you practice the works of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then I would turn the page. And, and every time I would read Galatians, I would turn the page and there would be this, this refreshing wind that would come over me. And it would say, But, but, the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, these virtues are well known... I don't think we have to go through and, and define what these are. I, I don't think the problem is that we wonder what these things are. We know these when we see them, don't we? We know love when we come face to face with it. We know what joy looks like when we see it in others and experience it in ourselves. We know what shalom looks like in others and in ourselves. Patience, we know what patience looks like and often what it doesn't look like. We know these sometimes by their opposites. We know what kindness is, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We know what these things are, the fruit of the Spirit. But he says here that these are God's fruit, the Spirit's fruit. And you can line some of these up with the works of the flesh. And they're exactly the opposite, aren't they? What's the opposite of enmity? Well, it's love. What's the opposite of, of dissipation? Well, it's, it's self-control. And you can line many of these up directly. They are, they're exactly the opposites. And Paul says, there's no law against these sort of things. And that means two things. And I think finally we're in a position to understand how this works with faith and law and fruit. Because he's not simply saying that nobody, nobody makes laws against love. Nobody makes laws against joy. Nobody makes laws against peace. Against such things there is no law. That's certainly true. But even more than that, when these things are operative, there is no need for somebody to bring in the law. Let's think about this. The one who is controlled by love and not by enmity, you don't need to go to that person and say, Thou shalt not kill. Right? There's no need to come in with the law because that person is walking according to love and thus fulfilling the law. The one who is characterized by joy and by peace and contentment. You don't need to come in and say, you shall not covet because it wouldn't occur to such a person to covet because he or she is already characterized by internal peace and internal joy. One who is animated by patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness does not need a law to say, Honor your father and your mother, or You shall not steal. Those things would be the farthest things from his or her mind. These wouldn't even occur to him or her. The one who is controlled by faithfulness does not need a law that says you shall not bow down to images and does not need a law that says you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Such laws would be superfluous. One who is self controlled does not need a law that says you shall not commit adultery because it's not necessary to give a law when we are controlled by the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see how this works? It's not that we're abandoning the law. It's not that we're rejecting the law. On the contrary, the law becomes superfluous because we are fulfilling the law through faith that shows itself in love and in peace and in joy and so on. Now, in the last couple of verses, the last couple verses, we have two more expressions that go together. And those are, "...live by the Spirit." and keep in line with the Spirit. Translated here, keep in step with the Spirit. Verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Once again, let me point out, it points out the Spirit's work, and it points out how we respond to that, doesn't it? It says, if we live by the Spirit, that's the Spirit's doing, living by the Spirit's power, what are we doing? He's saying, let's keep in line. Let's work on our lives to keep in line with the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. Now, notice, notice that all of this has to do with being led. So, it's living by the Spirit, it's being led by the Spirit, it's, it's keeping in step with the Spirit, it is walking in the Spirit. And I, I want to emphasize, as Paul does, that what's it look like to be led by the Spirit? Because in our Christian vocabulary, sometimes we use that expression. And we talk about being led. What does it mean to be led? Well, what it means to be led by the Spirit is to exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it means to be led. In the New Testament, we don't find this expression very often. We find it in two instances. We find that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil... And we also, in Romans 8 and here in Galatians, the only two instances where it talks about being led by the Spirit, it talks about being led by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and to keep in step with the fruit of the Spirit and to exhibit it in our life. That's what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. And that's how you can tell if you or another person are being led by the Spirit. Often we use that expression in Christianity at least modern Christianity, to, to back up a decision we have made. We said, well, I was led by the Spirit to do this or that. And that may be the case. That may be the case, but the good thing is, we have objective checks so that we can know whether being led by the Spirit or not. Because I have had people tell me, with a straight face, that they were led by the Spirit to do something that the Bible forbids. And I've had to say... You may have been led to do that, but it was not by the Holy Spirit. You may have been led, but it was not God who led you to do that. So we need to be very careful. And how can we check whether this this impulse that we have, this feeling, this sense of being led, how can we, we sense if this is by the Holy Spirit or not? Well, we can ask, is it in accordance with the teaching of Scripture? Is it in accordance with the teaching of Scripture? Because the Spirit will never lead us to do something against what He has already inspired the holy writers of Scripture to say. He will never contradict Himself. And the other is this Does this leading produce in you? Does it evidence in you? Does it give you an opportunity to show forth love and joy and peace? and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. If you can click those two boxes, go for it. A wonderful leading of the Spirit in accordance with the Word and as an opportunity to show forth the fruit of the Spirit. We also have a negative test, and that's the last verse. The Spirit will not lead us to become conceited, the Spirit will not lead us to provoke one another, the Spirit will not lead us to envy one another. So if if we think that we're being led by the Spirit, but it is in order to produce works of the flesh, guess what? That's not the leading of the Spirit. So we have one negative check, and we have two positive ones, so that we might know if we are led by the Spirit. Now, this instruction of Paul, as I said at the very beginning, is not new to Paul. It is very much in keeping with Jesus' teaching. Because he said very, very clearly, you shall know them by their fruit. You shall know them by their fruit. And Jesus had an encounter one time with a tree. It was a fruit tree. And he saw it from a distance. And that fruit tree looked like my Bushy, leafy, greeny, thorny tree. It looked good from a distance. And then Jesus got up close to it and guess what? It didn't have any fruit. And He said that it would never have fruit. And it withered up and died. And that was a judgment on the people of God in His day. Because Many of them look good on the outside, but on the inside, he had to take some of them to tasks and use very strong language and said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You shine on the outside and you're very pretty, but you don't have the inside that produces real fruit. Now, we can use this to see what people are like. You will know them by their fruit. But the first person we need to apply this test to is to ourselves. And we may need some help with that. Because we sometimes don't know ourselves as other people know us. We don't see ourselves as other people see us. So maybe we need to invoke some help. Maybe we need to invite some people to help us out. Maybe husband or wife maybe parents or children, maybe co-workers or friends, and say, this is what I really want to be produced in my life because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I I really want to come out of me love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What do you see in me? What kind of fruit do you see in my life? You see, they will be our best judges of whether we're going around sticking people with our thorns or nourishing people with the fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives. Let's pray. Our God. We thank you for how practical this book has all of a sudden become. And it comes down to the daily actions and reactions of our lives. And I have to admit that my actions are often better than my reactions. I can act well when I'm in control, but then things get out of control around me and my reactions aren't up to the level of my actions. And so, Lord, I need your spirit to work in me. And we all need your spirit to work in us. I pray for myself. I pray for our church that whatever we might be known for, now or in the coming years, that we would be known as people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. That we would be able to exercise the fruit of the Spirit in our marriages, in our families, our friendships, even with those who oppose us and make our lives difficult, or maybe especially with those who oppose us and make our lives difficult. I pray, O God, that we would be evidently people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self-control. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.